all the expectations, everything. It's like you're ripped out of everything that you hold dear, but you are empowered. You're who you came here to be. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Martha Alderson. Martha is author of Boundless Creativity, a spiritual workbook for overcoming self-doubt, emotional traps, and other creative blocks. Martha is known as the Plot Whisperer. She's written a number of books to help creatives get their stories told. Her clients include best-selling authors, New York editors, and Hollywood movie directors. Martha also has an award-winning blog for writers. Martha is a transformational consultant who's also known as the Plot Whisperer. She's dedicated herself to helping others express themselves. In this interview, we talk about, of course, the creative process. We talk about something Martha calls the universal story. We talk about how to deal with opposition in our creative projects when it inevitably comes, how to deal with obstacles, both internal and external, how to deal with breakdown, Really what to do when you come up against anything that stands in the way of you producing the result you want, finishing your story. We explore the three major emotions that all creatives deal with, fear, sorrow, and happiness. We explore Martha's idea that we are all here to heal something. We explore the topic of forgiveness, why it matters, how to do it, starting with ourselves and extending that to others. I think this interview is likely to appeal to you most if you are a writer, A, and B, if you are a writer of fiction, although we cover a number of things that are related simply to creativity, the creative process, living a spiritual life. If you're interested in Martha, if you're interested to learn more or to connect with her, you can do so at MarthaAlderson.com. You can also Google her. Again, she's known as the Plot Whisperer, and you'll find her on all major social media platforms either under Marsha Alderson or The Plot Whisperer. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Martha Alderson. Martha, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm so glad you're here. Martha, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Oh, that's a great question to start with. Let's just start there. Yeah. (laughs) We'll go into your childhood next. No. I think life is about taking risks in order to expand who you are and what your capabilities are and is to bring you to a sense of wonder about yourself that each time you take a risk and you realize that you you know you either fail or you succeed those words to me are sort of meaningless but but each time you do especially if you start something and you see it to the end whether you're wild about it at the end or not it really is an empowering experience. 
and it allows you to then keep stretching and growing because especially now it just feels like we're ready for change and everybody is looking for change. I mean, dramatic, profound change. And, you know, we're called upon to use our creative talents and innovation to get us there. But if we play small and we aren't willing to take the risks, you know, we live in a fear-based mentality, then what we came here to do will never be manifested. Yeah. That resonates with me. And when I saw your book, Boundless Creativity, a spiritual workbook for overcoming self-doubt, emotional traps, and other creative blocks, I knew immediately that was something that I was interested in, that I was interested to help get the word out about, both because it contained the word spiritual. And I know that can be a nebulous term. What does it mean? Can turn some people off. But also because very clearly creativity is in the title. And as we know, those things are very closely linked. Let me ask you, who did you write this book for and why? Well, I wrote this book for anyone who is struggling, who is blocked emotionally or creatively, who, you know, is paralyzed by self-doubt. I have spent my life empowering especially women's voices. And I started with plot. And then I realized that people were really having trouble between knowing what a scene and summary were. So then I kind of backed up, went into that. But then I also realized, because I've done plot consultations with writers from all over the world, screenwriters, memoirs, and every genre of fiction. And what I realized is that some of the, the most talented, brilliant writers are the ones that are so tangled in fear and insecurity and uncertainty about, you know, should I go forward? Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? And it just, it broke my heart, really. You know, I really wanted to give people a resource to dive deep into their own selves, examine their emotions, figure out who they really are, what the obstacles are, both external and internal, and to be able to see themselves differently and actually transform. I mean, that is my biggest dream is to see people not just change, but to actually transform at a, at a deep level. Yeah, that, that's so beautiful. And, and listening to what you're saying now, I'm reminded how there is no necessary correlation between our confidence and our competence, right? There are people who have very little talent or very little skill who are, they put themselves out there in a big way. And meanwhile, there's people who are incredibly talented that maybe hold themselves back. And it doesn't necessarily matter what capabilities we have when we can start to maybe separate, you know, that from the fear type thing, which we all have, right? We, we all live with. And, and I wonder, I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to ask this as well. You just mentioned that you've worked on plot. You're known as the plot whisperer. This is, was this like your eighth book? Seven, something like that. Something <laughs> Six like book, that. Something. You've know. written a number of books already. Yes. Right. But who are you? How do you like to introduce yourself when you meet someone new or when you're introduced from a stage? What kind of words and descriptions do you like to, to, to use? That assumes you do, <laughs> that you like some words, but how do you typically describe yourself? That's another good question. I describe myself as a transformational consultant, as a plot consultant as the plot whisperer, as someone who has devoted her life to helping others express themselves. You know, I was 
dyslexic and nonverbal as a child. And I really learned the power of speaking up, speaking out and speaking back and how empowering it is when you are able to speak your truth, not the truth that you were brought up to believe or you know, other people's expectations, but your unique, original gifts that you have. So I don't know, that's kind of a long winded answer. But yeah, that's, that's what I would say. I find something very admirable about that. Like when I hear you say you've dedicated your life to helping others express themselves, right? And this is something that over the last few years has only in the last few years, has it become, has it come into my awareness about the stories we live that every one of us is living a master narrative perhaps and a variety of you know sub narratives in there and and we can choose to embrace those or reject those or create a new create and live a new one at any time and that's interesting because sometimes those narratives involve other narratives right that our narrative my narrative is I'm a storyteller and then I get to tell stories and things like that but part of what and I'm glad that you brought up about being nonverbal and dyslexic because I read that in your book and I was going to ask you talking about being developmentally delayed and a sentence in here, just on page nine, when you say, I was repeatedly molested as a young girl, which I thought that it was interesting to me that you included it, but you didn't dwell on it. It was like, you're giving the reader context of who you are and what you do, but it wasn't as another guest of mine recently says, in America, especially perhaps, we love to re-traumatize ourselves. We just embrace those stories and tell them again and again. But to me, it was like, you told it in a way that it was, these are things that happened to me but I'm going to move forward. I've moved forward in my life and I want to help you do the same. So that all leads me is maybe there was an attempt to give a little more context for the listener, but where I want to go now is how do you go about that? So clearly, how do you go about helping people express themselves? Clearly writing books is one way, but if somebody wanted to work with you, they wanted to express themselves and have the benefit of your assistance, what would that, what might that look like? Well, and just to go back to what you said, the reason that I did include it was that I wanted to show that I'm just like everybody else, you know, and that I come to this and I came to these exercises and all the things that I have in the workbook through working through my own demons so that it's not like I'm standing above or standing apart and sort of trying to give advice. It's just I'm sharing what I learned, what worked for me. And also, you know, when the whole me, you too, me too, movement happened and so many women were so courageous to come forward i had never spoken about my abuse ever and i'm you know 69 years old and it was really it, i wanted to stand in solidarity with these other women and be able to show that this happens to people and it's crushing and you know it's not something to be ignored or to push aside, but to get out of your body and let it go because it can, I think it can kill us, you know, by, by holding on to those traumas. Yeah. I, I think you're right. And, and a teacher of mine once said that which you can't say owns you. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and, and I and never also- owned my own story. And that's, and I think that that's crippling really. I mean, I'm helping everybody else own their story. And it was like, Hey, Martha, when is it your turn? You know, it's, it's now or never. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I'm reminded about, you know, someone once suggested to me that the etymology of holiness is the same as wholeness. 
And perhaps in a way we do become, you know, holy as we become more whole. And as we embrace those events that happen to us and start to share them and, you know, all that can come with that. So I acknowledge your courage in doing that. And and I believe, I mean, I believe it's an important part of, of, of anyone's journey, right? And I want to ask you in a moment about the universal story. I was very intrigued by that because of course I'm familiar with the hero's journey. I think we're all familiar with the hero's journey, but I'd never heard of a model articulated like you articulate the universal story. But before, before we get there, I want to go back to that question because I personally am curious and I suspect some people also are curious, what, what might working with you look like? Do you do workshops? Do you do retreats? Is it like more like coaching where it's one-on-one? Do you have other online courses? Like if somebody wanted to engage with you, what, what might it look like? Well, I don't do as much as I used to because I am devoting myself to projects that I've put on hold because I was working with other people. But I do plot consultations where I don't read people's work. I just help them create the structure and make sure that they're hitting the major turning points or energetic markers. You know, we talk about character emotional development, the change that the characters go through the thematic significance of the story and the scenes that they're creating and the dramatic action to make sure that it is dramatic and not just action and that there's cause and events. I mean, cause, yeah, cause and effect. And, you know, all of those elements that make for a good narrative. And when I work with people in the creative arts and in as a transformational guide, It's more about setting up a goal that they're interested in that they haven't been able to achieve or that they're blocked about, and then working through that. And it's very similar to the workbook, but rather than the creative doing it themselves, I'm sort of guiding them and helping them understand what's going on in a way that they can't always see for themselves. And it's really gratifying work. I mean, I feel so grateful that people trust me so much with their hopes and dreams. And, you know, they're so open and honest about what they think are imperfections. And yeah, so I used to do retreats. I don't do them anymore. I now am doing some online workshops. I was gratified about the pandemic only to the extent that it's okay not to travel anymore because I'm really a homebody. I mean, I love to stay home. I don't really want to travel. And um, so the fact that we can do like this online, is just, it's like perfect to me. Yeah. A friend sent me a, a meme that was, uh, it, <laughs> it was Marilyn Manson, you know, so look kind of the goth leaning against the window, looking outside. And it said something like, stay away from others, you know, remain at home. And then it said, I've been training for this my whole life. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. Exactly. Like, yeah. That's great. That's yeah. This, great. And people tell me, cause I consider myself an introvert as well. And I hear some extroverts saying how hard this is. And I think, yeah, my need for variety isn't getting met like it was when I traveled and went to events and things, but there's a part of me that as crappy as some of the external circumstances are for sure. Man, I love being home. Okay. Yes. And opposition. You talk about that. I love what you say about <sighs> opposition. Opposition demands that you fight through trials or lose energy and put the goal aside. But you also talk about the fact that it's your your opposition. I don't remember how you phrased it, but when I read it, when you talked about the opposition points to like where the growth is or where the truth is, you know, that kind of thing. But maybe that's all within the context of the universal story. So maybe we go there first. What is the universal story? 
Well, you're right. It is very similar to Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, which you know you see in books and novels and stories. And it's also similar to Coelho's The Alchemist, you know, the universal language. And then Carlos Santana, his memoir is titled The Universal Tone. So it embodies all of this. And it also embodies beyond the human form. You know, I think we get so hung up on putting ourselves in the primary position. And what the universal story shows is that it also is, you know, it's this energetic pathway that runs through nature as well. We see it in the lunar cycles. We see it in the seasons of the year. We see it in, you know, animals and insects and all of that, that it's this universal pathway, energetic pathway that travels through all of us, that we are all sort of energetically connected in some form or another. And we're all on this pathway just at different places and different for different reasons. Yeah. And this is something I reflect about a lot about, you say, you know, a path or, or, you know, I think of a journey that we're all on, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I like what you're saying about everything, everything, you know, is, is on this or is a part of this path. And sometimes it, right. And there is a progression. There is a sequence. There are steps or phases, you know, and, and I think about this, I don't talk about this a lot publicly, but I'm going to say it here a couple years for, I haven't done it for this year. This six months have disrupted a lot of things in my life, but for the last couple of years, I've studied tarot quite quite a bit, and I, I'm not sure where it came from. Maybe it was you know symbols and images and colors and numbers and things, and looking at how as human beings we're meaning makers, right? And trying to make that process more conscious. And one of the things that I saw in that is about how very much there's a journey represented in the tarot, right? The journey from birth to death, the journey from ignorance to wisdom that every single one of us is on, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. And of course, along the way, you know, where we think we want something or we have a destination and then we learn something new or we get stymied, you know, this kind of thing. So how do you see this universal story? I mean, what, what are the steps? What are the stages? How do we travel it? Well, (laughs) I'm asking, I'm back to the big questions again, but how do you describe the different aspects of the journey? Well, and I think just to go back for a second, what you said about whether we know it or not that we're on this path. I think that, I mean, I, for me, part of the reason that I wrote this workbook is to help people to become conscious that yes, they are on this journey. You know, I call it a voyage because I live at the um, beach, but yeah. And so I think that because we're so trained on this, you know, you go to school, you, you know, learn a trade, or you go to college, or you get a degree, and you start a family, and you have kids, you know, it's like, all of these expectations that are societal, they're cultural, they're, you know, within our families. And so we're like on this, you know, hamster wheel sort of moving, always busy feeling like, okay, are we are we doing it well enough? And, you know, if I can meet these expectations, I'm going to be happy someday without realizing that today is the day. And so I think it's really important for us. And that's why I thought that the whole sheltering in place, you know, during this pandemic 
has been beneficial to a lot of people who have the luxury of, um, you know, where they don't have to really be scrambling for food and rent. And, you know, I know a lot of people are really, really having a horrible time. But for those who I hear of, oh, I'm kind of bored and, you know, I've got so much time on my hands. You know, I can't do the things I used to do. You know, what What should I watch on Netflix next? Yes. Right. I think it's uh, it has been a fantastic opportunity to go inward and to really start to understand what's important. I mean, are, is what you're doing that you think is going to bring you happiness? Because a lot of times we're, we are striving for other, what other people are promising us. Oh, it'll be worth it in the end. And it's like, but this is the end. I mean, right now today is the moment, you know? And so if you're not happy now and you have the ability to make radical changes, do it, you know, take the risk and do it. I always go backwards and then I forget your question about going frontwards. I'm it's sorry. It's fine. Yeah. Well, and, and what you're saying here too, it reminds me of two things. I think about one of my teachers talks about, he says, you keep wondering, you know, talking to, to us, you keep wondering how life is going to turn out. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. turned out, you know, <laughs> and, and it always turns out. And, and then the other thing, one of the guests that was on the show, he talked about, he, he talks about happiness and he says that when he, when he teaches his course and he'll and ask people if they, if a genie could grant them three wishes, what would they ask for? And almost never, like literally almost never do people wish for happiness. They wish for something. Why? Because they think it will bring them happiness. But what if happiness isn't dependent on anything or, or even, you know, accomplishing anything? And, and I think that's probably true, but that's not the way our society is oriented. You know, where we are very individualistic, we're very action oriented, you know, very materialistic, you know, for better or for worse, it's lifted a lot of people from poverty and cured a lot of diseases and things like that. But as we know, it's probably introduced just as many, you know, at least on a spiritual sense of we, we think if we check all these boxes or we just run faster on the treadmill fulfillment, you know, will be ours, but it's not often the case. So the question that I was asking when we got on this thread of the conversation was about maybe this, like the stages of a universal journey and as a journey we're all on, whether we know it or not. And I like that you, you break it into four parts because I've learned the quaternity is actually something that didn't mean to be like as, I don't, I don't know, this is mystical, but somebody, another one of my guests introduces me to this idea that what's missing from the Holy Trinity is actually the feminine spirit that, that, and you look at it in our world that where we're so imbalanced is because of the suppression or the lack of inclusion of the feminine energy in the world. And so I have this affinity for the number four as well. And I was interested that four, you know, the four valves of the heart, the four directions, you know, on the compass, but in the, in the stages of the universal journey, it did not escape me that you've broken it into these four parts. What, what are the four parts of the universal journey? Well, first, just let me tell you that I am thrilled to hear about what your friend, um, or what one of your other people that you were interviewing had to say, because I too am really distressed by that. I think that the patriarchy has, you know, the world is so off balanced and women are so excluded from, from everything. And until there is balance and there's some power shifting that takes place, yeah, we're never going to get where we want to go. But anyway, okay, now I remember what the question was. So the universal story, yes, I divided into four. Because usually in writing, it's the three-act play, you know, a three-act, how you break up your story. But I found that it really breaks into four. And again, it goes along with this, you know, universal story idea 
that there is a beginning, there's growth, there's death, and then there's rebirth or resurrection or, or whatever the, you want to call the last section. And it's really, really helpful if you are conscious of where you are on the universal story. It's, and you could be in different places in different aspects of your life. So you could be in one part of the universal story on with a creative project you have going, and you could be in another phase of the universal story in your relationships with others and you know so on and so forth. And it's very helpful to be aware of where you are because each phase has its, you know, has important messages and lessons to teach you. And when you're aware of that, you can be, you can see where you've been and you can also anticipate where you're going. And so it allows you a sense of, you know, if you're really stuck or you're in a lot of, you know, obstacles and there's a lot of dilemmas and things are just really upside down and you're and you're you know crushed by whatever is happening if you understand okay this is where i am i can see the light at the end of the tunnel and i sort of also know how to get there and it doesn't mean you're going to just leap over and get there but it allows you to more gracefully move forward with a sense of trust and faith that you are going to reach your dreams or you know your goals or whatever it is that you have set for yourself. Interesting. So this is both what I'm hearing and what you're saying is both this is true of the structure for any narrative work that we might create, but also for our lives, right? In any aspect of our lives, we could, we could look at it in this way. And it started because I was working with writers and I saw that the middle of a story encompasses twice as much energy as the beginning and, or the end. And that's where the story is, is in the middle. The beginning is setting everything up and the end is bringing it to fullness. But the middle is where the real heart and soul of a story is. And it needs, and I think it warrants the time and attention to break it into two parts because there are different expectations for the protagonist or the human being, if you're looking for yourself, at the beginning of the middle, then and it's vastly different about what's happening at the second half of the middle. Yeah. Well, and one, so one of these phases you talk about, I think you call it the dive, the, the dive deep in the third phase, maybe the death, the death phase, right? Where all is lost, the dark night of the soul, the thing that we inevitably, we hit a wall, you know, we lose hope, you know, this kind of thing. And it, we all have it. Any creative endeavor seems to, you know, we seem to run into it and you use this term opposition. You know, we, we know people like Stephen Pressfield will use a term like resistance, you know, maybe this is a little different, but how do you think of opposition and what can we do when inevitably we encounter it? What kind of strategies can we use to help us keep moving forward in the face of something that might otherwise paralyze us? Well, so what you're talking about is sort of two-faced again. It's the middle. One is where you're hit with obstacles and antagonists. And then the second half is where you're really brought to your knees. You know, we have a breakdown, which is gives you the potential for a breakthrough. But at the beginning of the middle of the universal story, when you meet obstacles, which is anything that is interfering with you moving forward, whether it's internal, your own fears or, you know, insecurities, 
or it's external, you know, it's the expectations of others or your job or, you know, the, the life situation that you're in. When you come up against anything that's standing in the way of what you want, there is a message there. There is a gift that is inherent within that obstacle, but you have to find it <laughs> and you have to appreciate it. And you can't necessarily, or, you know, you can, but it's best if you don't just, you know, plow through it and force yourself to, you know, I'm going to get through this one way or another, because you're losing the message. You're forcing yourself to get to an end without allowing for the help that it's waiting to come forward for you. That is, you know, if you're open to it, there is this force that will come, you know, that will meet you halfway when you show that you're willing to go the distance. And that help is where you learn new lessons, you learn new skills, you learn how to be patient, you become aware of what your flaws are and how you're sabotaging yourself. You see the people around you differently. Why do I surround myself with all these people who don't believe in me and who are telling me I'm not worthy or what's the point? Don't waste your time. Come on, let's go out to lunch or whatever. Well, that's kind of in the old days when we could go out to lunch. <laughs> but so there, these are messages. You know, when you're stopped in your tracks, it's because you need to learn something. You either need more practice or you need to get a mentor or go to a class or you need whatever it happens to be. And that is the gift. And without that, you still might achieve your goal at the end, but you won't have been changed or transformed. And you won't necessarily be satisfied with what you achieved because it's not the miraculous sort of, you know, it's not imbued with more than just your willpower of, I'm going to get through this one way or another. Yeah, there's a lot in what you said. You know, that, that comes up for me, including, you know, you talk about, you know, when we really demonstrate our commitment. And I'd always heard, my dad used to talk about when the teacher is ready or when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I love the way that Steve Jobs talked about that, about when one is willing to travel the world in search of a master, one will move in next door. You know, and that kind of thing where in my experience, what you're saying is true, that it's like when we're really, like when something, it, when a desire is so strong, it occurs as a need. Then in those moments, it's kind of that you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Like in those moments, it's always fulfilled. Like assistance always comes or you always find a way. And again, I know this is at a very high level. We're talking conceptually, but whether it's a project or it's a life, I think. And, and that's why, I don't know why my mind goes here, but maybe it's just in this obstacles and losing hope and things like this is realizing that a lot of people, you know, in our society today live with a lot of depression, with a lot of doubt, with a lot of insecurity, a lot of fear, this kind of thing, to the point, you know, I'm reminded that people are taking their lives at an incredible rate, you know, which to me, it, on the one hand, I think I understand because I've dealt with depression for a long time, but there's another part of me that thinks, man, humanity has struggled for hundreds of thousands of years just to survive. And now we're here with all these comforts and conveniences and people are often themselves you know, for whatever they're feeling alone, they're feeling it's not worth it, you know, and I think it's these kinds of moments that are true dark nights of the soul that I think that to me, it's a shame on so many levels because we are all connected and we do all have a contribution to make. And that's part of where personally, I'm interested in this. How can we keep moving forward in life, even when it seems like it's not worth it or all hope is lost? 
you know, and, and that kind of thing. So I don't know if you, if there's more there for you to say, but I just, I just wanted to explore that a little further if, if it made sense to you. Well, yes, because the dark night is a turning point. It is a death and it can be a literal death. And I'm very sensitive to it because I went through a dark night where I lost hope and I really struggled with holding on. And I really believe if I didn't know about the universal story and believe in it to the degree that I do, I'm not really sure what could have happened to me and what I might have done to myself, to, to hurt myself. And so I would love to get the workbook into the hands of people who are at that point in their life, because once you hit the crisis or the dark night or, you know, whatever that moment is where all is lost, you then, the energy of the energetic pathway drops. You know, you're, you've been moving forward, the energy is rising, things are happening, you're overcoming everything, whatever, and then boom something just, you know, knocks you out and you fall into the abyss. And that is where decisions are made, you know, life and death sorts of decisions. And if you can be aware of that and, you know, give yourself the time you need to heal yourself, when you come out, that is where the transformation begins. It doesn't begin anywhere earlier in the universal story. It begins after the dark night in the abyss when you decide you're going to take what you've learned. It's like everything that held you back, everything that you believed in, you trusted, all of that is burned away from you. All the expectations, everything. It's like you're ripped out of everything that you hold dear, but you are empowered. You're who you came here to be. And if you can embrace that, and move forward, it doesn't mean that you're just going to get your goal or you're going to achieve whatever or be happy forever after, but you will be changed at depth. And that change will resonate in every aspect of your life. And it's, you know, so it's worth not giving up or giving in, but to persevere and to really understand this too is part of the journey. And I think that a lot of us go through a dark night and we don't necessarily talk about it, but there is a lot of struggle. And in the book, I talk about three major emotions that are fear, sorrow, and happiness. And, you know, for a lot of people who live in a fear-based consciousness, you know, that's where anger comes from, is from fear. That's where, you know, lots of negative emotions come out of fear. And that's what stops us from moving forward. But sorrow is where depression comes from, is by holding this sorrowful, you know, energy within us. And sometimes you have to go through a dark night because you could, you can go so far afield of your promise, you know, you can just get so lost way over here where you're really supposed to be over here. And so sometimes you have to be knocked over the head and suffer great pain in order to find your truth path again. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. And it, it reminds me a bit of that famous line about, you know, the cracks are where the light gets in. You know, I think it was Leonard Cohen. Well, what about happiness? Because you touched on fear and you touched on sorrow. Why happiness? Why is that one of the three major emotions that you spend time 
Explain. Well, but just like fear and sorrow, it's very, it doesn't necessarily last. You know, if we get what we want, we're happy. If we don't get what we want, we're sad. So the real place that you want to try to get to, which can come after a dark night when you are in the last quarter of the universal story, is to the place of joy. Because that's not, that's a state of being. It's not a state of mind. And so happiness is a great thing to strive toward, you know, to live a happy life. I mean, I always, you know, working toward that. But if you can get to a place of joy, it means that even in darkness or even when you're fearful or you're feeling sad, you still can feel joy because you understand what it means and what it represents. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a pretty profound distinction as well. And and I explore that with friends on road trips. <laughs> These are the kind of conversations we have. One thing that I find factors into that, and I'm interested to get your view about this, is about purpose and it's about meaning. Because my experience is that as we live, we either have a lived experience of our lives as having purpose and being meaningful, or we don't. That it's kind of binary, I think. Maybe not every li- every waking second, of course. But we either have the sense of it or we don't. And if we don't, that can make all the difference in experiencing joy, even when things are hard or even when things are unpleasant, you know, that kind of thing. And what's your, what's your take on the importance of meaning and purpose in one's life and, and how can we find it? I'm just asking all the big questions here today. <laughs> no, it's great. This is fun. I, it's, I feel like I'm on a road trip with you. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> So I really do believe that we come here for a reason, that when we incarnate, we come to heal something. And when we, you know, go through the process of birth, most often we forget what that is. And often we are hit with whatever it is that we came here to do. We're hit with that negativity of that. So if we're here to heal you know, sexual abuse, then oftentimes we will be sexually abused. You know what I mean? So if we come here to heal on whatever level, oftentimes we will have to experience it firsthand in order for us to then understand what it takes to be able to overcome that or to change that or whatever. Yeah. The classic, the classic archetype of the wounded healer. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that can help determine our purpose. But we also are here, you know, we are creators. We are born to create. If whatever it is out there, the energetic force wants to manifest anything, it needs us to do the manifestation because only we can take, you know, a wisp of inspiration and create a tangible artistic or whatever and result. And so our purpose is to create, is to be a creator. And our purpose is to show up for the creative force, the creative energy in order to help advance the world, civilization, whatever it happens to be, but is to do our part. And we get blinded because of all of the societal stuff of, you know, you're supposed to be doing all this other stuff. And so then there's no time for this deeper spiritual 
you know, this deep down, meaningful, profound, wise purpose that we are here to do. And you have to have practices to be able to, you know, center yourself and come back to yourself because we just scatter ourselves with all these things that don't really matter. Yeah. I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. I mean, it's yeah. just part of it. Yeah. You talk about forgiveness. Mm. Uh, you list it as an important part of the creative process. Why? Well, because I think, number one, we have to learn to forgive ourselves. To forgive ourselves for not being perfect. To forgive ourselves for all the mistakes that we've made. You know, we beat ourselves up because we said the wrong thing to somebody. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that or we hurt someone that we love, or we, you know, make a mistake, or we screw up royally, and it really has horrible repercussions or whatever. And we carry that in our body, which limits us and our self worth. And so we have to learn how to forgive ourselves. And once we can forgive ourselves, we're much more capable of forgiving others for whatever they may have done to us, but to realize that we are sort of co-conspirators and that whatever happens to us, we're pulling energetically in order to sort of learn and grow from that, those, that those people that you think are, you know, a problem, that they may be in actuality a real gift because they're forcing you to face something that you need to face in order to make your mark and, and move forward and, you know, become the person that you came here to be. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting view. And I remember the first time that I was exposed to that idea. I don't remember the book, the, the author, the title of the book, but I remember that about how we, you know, I think you used the word co-conspirator right there, that we, that we're somehow always creating our experience. And, and this is actually, I'm a big, I'm a big fan and a big student of Tony Robbins. And one of the things he says, it's been the, it's probably been the one I've chewed on most but he says, there are no victims, only volunteers. And I was like, holy cow, like that is a very confronting statement, you know? But with this, what you're talking about, whether or not that's true, who knows? It's a Tonyism, right? But, but you're talking about forgiveness is an important part of the creative process, starting with yourself, extending it to others. How? How can we do it? If, if you discovered a mechanism, a process, an approach to actually affect, like to successfully achieve forgiveness? And if so, what is it? Well, that's a, good, that's a great question because I have online video series that are actually now for free because I wanted to, I didn't, I wanted to be able to be helpful during the pandemic and I didn't really know what I had to offer. So I thought I would make these four programs free for people who had extra time on their hands and maybe wanted to learn how to write a picture book or revise their novel or whatever. And one of them is a spiritual guide for writers. And, you know, I was filming it during this dark time I was talking about. And when I came to the part about forgiveness, I admitted that I didn't know. I didn't know what it was, how to do it, but that how valuable it really was. And since then, I have learned to forgive. And really, all it is is letting go. It's just letting go. It's like, so what? You know, why are you carrying all this baggage around with you? Whoever you think did you wrong, they're off, you know, living a full life while you're sitting here 
punishing yourself um, where you think that you're punishing them. And so this idea of so what came from a friend whose brother is autistic and he wrote a book of short stories, one of which was when he was in grade school because he was so different, he got bullied a lot and how courageous he was to go up to the bullies and just say to them, so what? So what if I'm different than you and I'm weird and blah, 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 blah. So what? And from then on, he was never bullied again. And I just love that expression. And I say that to myself a lot. So what? So what if things don't go your way or whatever happens? It's like, let it go. Move on. You know, don't hold on to toxic memories, to toxic stories, to toxic people. Just let it go. Yeah, I think there's a deep spiritual truth in that. And I'm reminded of the Buddhist principle of not attachment, mm-hmm. right? Letting it go over and over as many times as it takes. And my experience of forgiveness is that it's often like waves that, you know, any feeling like grief is one of these where it recurs, you know, and we think we've processed it or, you know, we're through it and then it comes back. And then that's, that's why it's a practice as we get to let it go again or make the decision again. But I think when you go through a dark night, and everything is sort of stripped from you, I think that also happens. You're, that you might not have to have that the waves keep coming because at some point it's just like, you realize that you are all you have. You are all there is. And so, you know, there's just an incredible freedom that comes if you can survive a dark night. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that is a, a product of or accompanies, you know, being humbled or, or finding humility for sure. Okay. So what haven't we talked about? In just a moment, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. But before we do, what, if anything, have we not discussed from this book or from your work or your life that you think might be worth discussing? Well, this is a little off track, but, you know, just speaking to you, I'm fascinated by you. I feel like I would like to do a podcast asking you questions because <laughs> it's like, it's just, yeah, it's interesting how, who you are and how you came to be interested in all these things. And, but I know that's not what we're doing here. So. Well, I'll, I'll be happy to give you the short version if you want the very short, I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> I love I language. Love so I use a lot of it. The short version is that I'm the youngest son of self-made billionaire entrepreneurs, and I'm very fortunate. But for the majority of my life, I felt guilty for my blessings, knowing that so many others have so little while I'm so blessed. And especially where I didn't do the hard work, I didn't take the risks, you know, that have resulted in the privilege that I enjoy. And for a long time, I felt life had no meaning while simultaneously yearning for a deep spiritual connection. And I've, I've loved to read and write and language and games and people and ideas and travel as long as I've known. But when I got into my twenties, after I got done being an English major and an Asian studies major, you know, kind of hiding in college, doing my best to pursue my passions as long as I could, I then went to work inside our family business, which wasn't really, I I love our family business and I'll always be a part of it. But at the time, especially it didn't feel like my path. And I, looking back, I now see when I left my path of learning and, and teaching and pursuing my curiosity, that was when I, that was when my dark night probably began. And then it culminated when my dad died. I divorced. I had a son who was born prematurely. He was 16 weeks early, 2.2 pounds, 20 brain surgeries, nine months in the NICU. I was in a job I didn't love. And I was in a faith crisis, which I didn't know at the time. 
And I made the decision that I was either going to kill myself, which I'd had suicide attempts prior to that, or I was going to create a life of, of meaning and happiness. And I didn't know how I'd do that. And I'm feeling moved now as I say it, but I met the woman who's now my wife. She's my best friend and soulmate. That was about 10 years ago. And I've been very fortunate with my freedom and my resources to go learn from many coaches and teachers and trainers. And this podcast is one way I've endeavored to continue that. So I'm really grateful to you for having this conversation with me because this is my happy place, you know, and then I work to share it with others because just two years ago, I sat down and I did a 12 month retrospective and I looked at all the incredible things I did. And then I extrapolated that into the future. And I said, if every year that I lived until I died, looked like this one, would I be satisfied? And despite having had so many incredible experiences, the answer was very clearly no. And when I said, why? It was because I didn't have a sense of contribution. And I thought if I can do this and then have and share it with other people, and hopefully it will align with them in a way that makes a difference, then hopefully that will give me the sense of contribution that I've been looking for. But that's a little bit about, you know, who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing here. Oh, gives me goosebumps. That's really neat. And I do think it's fascinating because, you know, I think if we had a chance to hear everybody's story, well, depending on where they are in the universal story, but how many of us have gone through a dark night and really been on the edge. And I think if there was more openness about that and discussion about that, it could be really helpful to people who are currently on the edge to realize you're not the only one. This is part of it. You know, you can do it. You can get through this because, yeah, too many lives are lost. Yeah, I think so. Thank you. That was really neat to hear about you. No, thank you for asking. Okay. Well, then with your permission, let's go to the lightning lightning round. Perfect. I'm ready. All right. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) That was an abrupt switch of gears, I know. That's okay. Life is like surfing. You know, in order to master surfing or to enjoy surfing, you have to throw yourself into the unknown. You know, you have to respect the ocean, the power of the ocean, but also you have to take great risks. You have to really, when you see the wave bearing down on you and you're sure you're going to get crushed, that's when you push off. And so, yeah, I think life is like surfing. Awesome. I love it. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Well, it's interesting because I've had, I've been ridiculed a lot for my ideas. I remember when the Plot Whisperer book came out for writers and, you know, this was years ago. And so many of the reviews I got on Amazon, which I know you're not supposed to listen to, but of course I only listen to the negatives. You know, I have over 200 reviews, but, and most of them are positive, but the negatives were like, oh, this is California hooey. And, oh, this is like, you know, she's in La La Land. Or so I have a feeling that, that like a lot of my ideas are, are sort of viewed that way. And I'm so gratified for the feedback I've gotten about the workbook because I think it really shows how far we've evolved in the last maybe 10 years of acceptance of more spiritually based things that are not religious. I am not talking about religion, but, but spirit, 
and that there is more acceptance of that and not as much eye rolling. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I'd probably say, so what? (laughs) I love it. Okay. Question number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Well, in the last couple of years, few years, I have done a lot of reading about the sacred feminine. I'm fascinated by the history of the patriarchy and, you know, what has happened to women over the years. So I love a book that was written by Sue Monk Kidd, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. That was just like mind boggling to me. And I love Women Who Run With the Wolves. Again, it was really enlightening. You know, so much, you know, because of my age and where and when I was growing up, when I was in school, all of my professors and all of my teachers were male. Every book that we were assigned was written from a male point of view. Everything has been from the eyes of the patriarchy, which is to put women into a box behind men. And so this exploration has just been eye-opening to me and really gratifying. It's very empowering and, and very exciting, although I wonder why, you know, it's these books that I'm referring to are The Goddess and Older Women, even, or Goddess and Every Woman. You know, these are 20-year-old books. And they were revolutionary at the time. But we haven't really, it's like they all came out at once. Everybody was talking about it. The women's movement started. You know, we were so hopeful we were going to get the ERA passed, which we never did. And then everything died. And it's like, where did every, where, where did it go? And how do we get it back to be able to get women moving forward again? Yeah, I, I have a feeling that some of that is still very much alive in the work of people like Mama Gina. If you know her. I hope so. I really yeah. hope so. And what's going on with, what's the term? Oh my goodness. Am I forgetting? You're too young for that. <laughs> I have a teacher who did, who has been taught by, is it Claire Estes? I forget her name. Yes. The women who she run. she wrote the women who run with the wolves. Yeah. And, and she's part of this, but a lot of her teaching comes in the form of what she'll call like the sacred masculine and the divine feminine you know, in this and women's empowerment. But anyway, okay. What are you reading currently? Or what's a book you finished recently? Well, one of these is this goddess, goddesses and older women, archetypes of women over 50. And it's, uh, it's just fascinating. It, you know, it's talking about the goddesses, the Greek and Roman goddesses and where they went and what happened to them and, and how they are still, you know, how you can find them in your, in your own life. Okay. Thank you for that. I'm assuming here that you've traveled a lot in your life. No. Lots of airports. No, not, not that. Okay. So this next question might not apply, but it's about when you do travel, what's something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make it less painful or more enjoyable? I really don't travel. I mean, I, I mean, I have, I've gone to conferences and I've gone to, you know, I've been asked to be keynote speakers and things like that, but I, I don't really like it. So, you know, I bring a book and I try to grin and bear it. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. Question number six, what's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, I have had a very addictive personality and to 
numb myself from the abuse that I suffered when I was a child and the learning problems that I had and the differentness that I felt. I numb myself through a lot of substances. And yeah, so by being able to quit those addictions was transformative, but it, it took years because there were so many of them. But now it's like I'm the straightest person that I know. And I think it's really led to a good quality of life. It's amazing. And congratulations on that. How did you do it? Was it 12-step programs, support groups, just willpower? What'd you do? Yeah, I just did it. <laughs> just did it. Just made a decision. Well, it wasn't that easy, but no, yeah, it took a lot of, took a lot of, it took a lot of trial and error and a lot of forgiveness and a lot of soul searching. And, and again, when I started learning about the universal story, I really had a much better sense of what was happening and why, and it made it a lot easier to walk into fully into my power and not to hide and not to let the past rule me anymore. That's beautiful. Thank you. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? How perfect they are, how terrific they are, how creative they are, how original they are, and that they are here with enormous gifts. And, you know, they don't have to share them because you don't have to do anything. But if you do, you will find such purpose and meaning in your life and miracles will start to happen. I think the more often you work your way through the universal story arc and you get to the triumph at the end, the more that the whatever this creative force is, you know, inspiration or imagination or whatever it is, well, you'll start getting hit with more and more of it because you've proven yourself worthy of taking it to the distance. And as you do that, you're met, as I was talking about earlier, with a lot of really, I mean, I hate to say it because it sounds kind of out there, but miraculous support. I mean, I can, and and the more conscious you are and and you're looking for it, the more you're going to find it. But I'm I'm in awe almost every single day because something totally unexpected will happen that will really help my path, will help me, you know, overcome whatever it was that I was working on or just ease my way forward. And it's, and then you feel like you're in partnership, you know, with this greater energy source. And it's, it's really quite remarkable. Yeah, that's fun. Thank you. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you ever learned about making relationships work? Well, forgiveness, letting go, saying so what, you know, not holding on to whatever, to realize that the relationships that you have in your life, you have attracted for a very specific purpose. And they can be honored, even if it's completely dysfunctional, you know, the relationship or the person or whatever, that they're there to teach you whether it's gently or harshly, they are there for a purpose. And once you realize what the purpose is, you can move beyond, you know, anything that is, you know, if it's a negative person or abusive situation or whatever, you can move through that when you understand what the message is and you can take that into your life. How did you learn that? How did I learn that? Well, you know, early on, I was really enamored with Carolyn Mace, M-Y-S-S, and she had a series of cassettes called The Energetic 
anatomy of energy or and I just fell in love with her. I mean, I probably memorized those tapes. I watched, I listened to them so much. I was traveling by car a lot, which I don't do anymore either. And I would just, I mean, I was happy to be traveling then because I could stick a tape in there. But a lot of the ideas that I have, I really, I really feel like I got them from her. And then from my work as a plot consultant, you know, it just broadened. It just made more sense. And then I could sort of make all of it into what I believed and, and bring that forward. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I had the chance to hear her speak a few years ago in Seattle. And oh, I think she's I a pretty amazing her. teacher. Yeah. And I think that what you've shared about viewing relationships in that way, if more people held that, I think more relationships would work or end, <laughs> you know, and it's like yes. get the message and yes. move on or prize it for what it is, you know, yes. celebrate it. So that's beautiful. Okay. Question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? You know, I've just had an unusual relationship with money. I really always trust that it will be there and that whatever I have at the time is enough. You know, I don't really need a lot and I don't really, yeah, that, that whatever I have is enough. And I don't, I'm not drawn to make a lot of money. I'm drawn to these things that we're talking about. And it seems that by staying true to that, when I need money, like I was just wanting to get some money for this project that I wanted to do, you know, miraculously, I got it. And it was like, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. So my relationship with money is that I just trust that it will always be there. That's awesome. What what was the project? Well, I when the book came out, I really wanted to hire a publicist, which I had never done before. And to me, that was like a extravagance. And it also was, you know, I've always everything I've done, I've done kind of as a one person endeavor. I've, you know, I don't have a team around me or any of that. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be fun to just have somebody set everything up and I can just do it and not have to race after it or whatever, or wait for it to come to me. But it was expensive, you know, a New York publicist. And yeah, and so then the money showed up and yeah. it was pretty wonderful. That's great. And I believe it was through that publicist, which is how we connected. Yes, exactly. So, and I would have great. never known you or yeah. been doing this if it weren't for them. So yeah, that's I'm great. very grateful. I'm so glad. Me too. That's great. And you know, to me, that's a really neat example too of, I know when we pursue what we want, I think it's easy to feel like that selfish or we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow ourselves to do the things we want. But I'm, I'm so often reminded of how, when we do what we want, other people, almost always other people benefit almost collateral, <laughs> there's collateral benefit, you know, to I think it. that's true. I believe that too. Yeah. So that's great. Okay, so I'll ask this here, so I'm not leaving it to the end, but if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Just send me an email, and you can do that on my website. You know, there's a contact page, and you can just send me an email, and yeah, I'm not great with emails. You know, I get rather, I drown in emails sometimes, but I always do get back to people, maybe just not right away. Awesome. And that's MarthaAlderson.com and Alderson, A-L-D-E-R-S-O-N. Yes. Right? Awesome. Okay. Fantastic. And of course, they can find your books at Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. 
preferably yes. buying from their local bookseller, but yes. if it's not safe to go out or for some reason it's not there. So great. Okay. And final thing here in the enlightening lightning round, I have made a hundred dollar micro loan on your behalf to an entrepreneur in Peru, a woman named Irlith, who will use this to manage natural forest Tara for beans and corn and wheat. She's a 34 year old woman. She's married with two daughters and she'll use this money to improve the quality of life for herself, her family, and her community. So thank you for giving oh, me a reason me to go cry. do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a great, generous heart. Well, that's, it's uh, fun for me to think that our conversation will benefit people you know, that we'll never probably meet. Oh, I'm thrilled. That is really, that spurs my imagination to think about who she is and what this will mean to her. So thank yeah, you. My, my pleasure. Okay, so that brings us to the final part of the interview, which is about writing and the creative process. Mm. Maybe a question or two about marketing and promotion. I know we've talked a lot about writing already. What might you say that would help the listener complete any creative project they're either in the middle of or they've been dreaming about for a long time? Let's Maybe we start there. Okay, well, one of the biggest bits of advice that I would give is what I found universally almost for new and aspiring writers or writers that haven't yet reached the end of whatever story they're working on is that most writers in the beginning of their career will spend an unbelievable amount of time at the beginning of their project. It's a safe place to be. It's the beginning of the universal story. You're not yet fully challenged. You're just starting. And what happens usually is that once you move into the middle of your story, which is the territory of the antagonists, where the protagonist is going to meet up with external and internal antagonists that are going to interfere with her goal, because you, you know, you're going to have a story goal for your protagonist. And once you get into that, you know, especially once you get to about the middle of the middle, you start to flounder. And so you're, and, and if you have more, you know, a lot of plot lines, like you have a romance plot and a mystery plot and a dramatic action plot and a character plot, you know, and maybe more than one viewpoint character, everything sort of starts to get tangled up. So then you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm going to get organized and then I'll be able to push my way all the way through. But what I find is that it becomes this cycle you'll hit that spot again, you'll become overwhelmed, you go back to the beginning. So that you're working the beginning so much that when you get to the end and realize what your story is really all about, because that's the only place that you're going to see where that happens, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm gonna to have to cut the first 50 or 100 pages of what I wrote. And after you've perfected it, you know, made every word perfect and it's just beautiful. I mean, really, are you gonna cut it? most writers will not. And then their story drags, the beginning goes on way too long. You know, whatever the, the writer has worked on, they needed to learn about the characters, but the reader didn't need to read it. So it's important to push yourself through to the end and write a down and dirty draft from beginning to end, and then be able to stand back. And then another piece of advice that I like to give is to use the universal story or what I call a plot planner, which is, you know, the same template to plot out the scenes of your story. And you can do this with nonfiction as well. 
to be able to see the energy of the universal and how the universal story and how the energy rises and falls so that you can start to map out, plot out the different scenes and what could happen here or there. And because the character did this, what are they going to do next? You know, so that you kind of have this broad overview, you know, where you can stand back and see the whole of your story. And then that way you're not facing the blank page, which is really daunting for most writers. You know, they will do anything they can to not face the blank page because they'll sit there and think, how do I fill this page up? So if you have a plotted out plan, you know how to get from one major energetic marker to the next. And it just becomes not easier necessarily, but you don't go off on so many, you know, wild goose chases or end up in dead end alleyways or whatever. You can kind of know what your overall focus is and how you're going to get there. And then, you know, you take your time, develop the character, get to know them, you know, let the character take over, which they're going to do anyway, but still trying to stay true to your vision. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one of my guests just recently, Gavin Edwards, he writes nonfiction, but it rem something he said reminds me of what you're saying here, where he talked about, you know, when you remember that books are written one word at a time, one sentence at a time, one paragraph at a time, that there's something that's very empowering about that. And, and as I hear you articulate this, that there's something about it that almost seems easy when I think of it, if I've mapped it out and here's the sections and yeah, I might end up moving those, or I might question if they're what I really want and things like that. But if I can stand back at a whiteboard or in Scrivener or, you know, an index cards and go, here's the basic structure. And now that I've roughed it out at this high level, what's left is just one word, one sentence, one paragraph at a time. There's nothing really complicated about that. What makes it complicated? What makes it hard? Well, because it's a creative endeavor. And I think anything that has to do with creativity is fraught with obstacles and challenges. I mean, that's why, I mean, that is what the universal story is about because you're going to be changed by having written your story. You'll be changed by, you know, after the story is finished, but you're going to be changed in the process of writing it. And when I do plot consultations, which I don't do as many as I used to, but I still do some, sometimes too many, I always start at the end. I start at the triumph or the climax because, as I was saying earlier, writers don't spend enough time there. But if you know where you're trying to get the character to and you know who the character has to be in order to achieve their goal at the triumph, you can deconstruct the character and then figure out how you're going to show what, what the greatest flaw could be at the beginning for the character arc to be able to get to the end. And so it's this process of, you know, because I'm dyslexic, I also do pretty much everything backwards, but it is a really, it's a, just a different approach and it's to force the writer to think about the end instead of obsess about the beginning. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask this question is kind of two facets is number one, what's the best money you've ever spent as a writer? And number two, what do you think is the best money that one could spend as a writer or to f develop themselves as a writer or further their writing career? Well, I haven't spent a lot of money being a writer other than this publicist. That was a lot of money. But yeah, you know, 
at some point in the middle of your story, if you're starting out, you're going to realize that there's a lot that you don't know. You don't know about plot, or you're really struggling with developing your character, or how do you convey emotions without telling, you know, oh, she's sad. Well, no, we want to see that, you know, and so you realize what you don't know. And so a lot of writers at that point might give up and say, well, you know, I guess you have to be born to be a writer. And I'm, you know, I don't know this stuff. So I guess I, I'm not meant to be a writer. But the fact is, is that we all struggle. And so you may want to spend money on going to conferences, although I guess you can't now, or to take workshops or to get a mentor or, you know, a plot consultant or whatever it is that you need support with so that you don't have to go it alone and struggle through the hard parts. And, you know, make sure you have a good computer because it's a heck of a lot easier to write a story. You know, I mean, you might write in longhand, which is wonderful because you have a completely different kinesthetic experience than on a computer, but eventually you're going to want to, you know, put it into a Word doc and yeah. Okay, thank you. Well, what else might serve a listener as it relates to a discussion of writing, that's a big question. There's so much. Is there anything else? I, maybe, and that's a that's a closed-ended question. <laughs> so I know I'm driving right at a yes or no. But is there anything else related to writing that you think is worth talking about? Oh, there's so much. You know, I think that in terms of nonfiction, if you have an idea and you, you know, it's somewhat like what I was doing. You know, I when I did plot, this was years ago, and there wasn't a lot written about plot. I remember going to all of the resources I could find and plot, you know, it, if I was lucky, there would be a chapter about it in the writing resource that I would find, or else it would be mentioned. Screenwriters have always known about plot because, you know, Hollywood movies have a specific plot. But Back in the day, it was, I think, two-pronged. One is, I think a lot of creative writing teachers didn't know plot, so they didn't stress it. But there was also this idea that plot and structure would stifle the creative impulse. And I feel differently about that. I think that once you can put a structure in place, it's like a sandbox. You know, if you know that that's the only area where you can play, you're, you're constrained, of course. But within that sandbox, you can do anything you want. You can develop any kind of a sandcastle or whatever you want where you don't have to get distracted by the rest of the beach. So anyway, so when I was first starting out writing fiction, I was really confused by plot. I had no idea how the heck you created it, you know, what was it, and the rest of it. And so I, so I saw a need and I filled it with the, I self-published my first book, Blockbuster Plots. And then I was asked to write the series for, you know, the Plot Whisperer series. So if you have something like that, go for it. I mean, you know, you're bringing new ideas into the world. And that, that's the greatest gift you can do because you're evolving. You're allowing things to grow and to become bigger or wider or broader. And so, you know, I really support people to do that. And if you get a wisp of inspiration for a story... And it won't let you go, you know, that you keep hearing this dialogue in your head or 
you see this character developing, write it down, just start, you know, and it's then that go that goes for any creative thing. If you have a vision that you dreamt about, and you wake up with this beautiful, you know, template in your mind, start painting, you know, get a canvas, get some paint, start putting something on the canvas. Because the saddest thing is how many seeds of inspiration are lost, because people won't pick them up and, you know, develop them into the miracle that they're that they're waiting to become. Yeah, I think you're right, for sure. God, there's so much. I know we could do another whole podcast just on <laughs> exclusive to writing. Going to ask best and worst advice for writers, time, the importance of routine. Okay, so I think this is the last thing I want to ask about writing. And then if there's anything else you want to say, we'll certainly cover that. But this was true for me for a long time, where it was like, when am I a writer? Am I a writer because I write in my journal? Am I a writer because I've had something published? Am I a writer because somebody's paid me for it? Somebody's written a review of my work? Like for people who, you know, this is something they aspire to, but they don't really know how. And I'm realizing as I ask the question, there's actually two parts, two things in this. Because one is talent. How do we really know if, if our writing is any good? You know, and the other is how do we know when we're really a writer? Well, I think you're a writer if you write. You're an author if you're published. So if you write in your journal every day, if you write poems or snippets or whatever, you are a writer. And, you know, I think that, and you said something about this just a second ago. I think that if you wait to create either writing or whatever your form of artistic pursuit is until you're inspired, you may not do it. But if you show up for a consistent practice at the same time every day, whether you do five minutes or you do five hours, you then, it's like any habit, you know, or any addiction, you do it enough times and your body will start to respond and you'll feel weird if you don't do it. You'll feel like, you know, you didn't brush your teeth that day or whatever if you don't write. But if you show up every day, you will be gifted. I mean, things will start to come to you. And yes, you may have to sit there and stare at a blank page for, you know, a few days or a week or weeks or whatever. But the more determined you are and the more that you honor and value the pursuit, things will start to flow and you'll start to learn about yourself. You'll start to learn about your craft. And I don't know that you have to be the most talented person in the world because it isn't talent alone. It's like what 5% talent and it's 95% determination and doing it. I mean, it's like if you get it done, you know, you've got something. I love that distinction between you're a writer if you write, you're an author if you're published. And then this about being rewarded if you show up. I'm, I'm reminded one of one of the guests who's agreed to interview with me is a, a guy named Stephen Cope, who's written a book. One of the books is, I believe, called The Great Work of Your Life. And, and I'm excited to ask him this thing. What you're saying reminds me of it. He says that he sees his responsibility to suit up and show up. That's the way he phrases it. And so he has that discipline of every morning sitting down at the writing desk and writing whether the inspiration is there or not. And it's like, boom, that's, there's something profound that happens. It's really helpful. It's wonderful to, to get into that routine because you start to anticipate it. You know, you can seed your dreams right before you go to sleep, that kind of twilight zone when you're half awake and half asleep. You can ask questions about your characters. 
answers will come up for you. You know, when I'm in the writing zone, I keep a pad of paper next to my bed because I'll wake up in the middle of the night and if I don't write it down, the inspiration or whatever comes, you know, oh, I'm sure I'll remember. This is so great, I'll remember. But then you wake up and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't remember. So when I'm really in the zone, I'll wake up and find all these pieces of paper on the floor with all these scribbles and, and I do it in the dark, you know. And so sometimes I'm scribbling over and I can't make it out. But it is, you do get fed. You do get, there is more that comes the more that you show up for it. And it's really, I can't stress enough for people who are on the cliff or the edge thinking, oh, I really want to, I've got this great idea. Go for it, take the risk. You're not living if you're not taking risks. Yeah, I love that. Okay, the final thing then in this, in this maybe in this whole interview is about marketing, promotion, getting the word out about our creative products. What have you learned about marketing and promotion that has served you? Well, that you have to do it, that if you expect that your publisher is going to do it for you, you're wrong. You know, if you're a New York Times bestseller and, you know, you've had a lot of great hits, then it's a different, you know, paradigm. But for most authors, the publisher will do what they can and they do a lot. I mean, there's so much in the back end which made me so grateful that I self-published or independently published because it, I understood by doing every single thing myself how much a traditional publisher does do for the author. But it's up to you to sell your book. And, you know, it's tough. I'm the daughter of a salesman and my husband is, was a salesman. And so I'm not afraid to sell. You know, I'm not afraid to, to do that and you have to and but it's tough because a lot of creative people are introverts i mean they're it's terrifying for them to get up and talk in front of a group or to talk about themselves or to talk about their passion or whatever and yet that is uh, you know it's too bad and it wasn't this way you know a million years ago but it is now that you are the one that's responsible for getting the word out you know through blogs, through social media, through podcasts like this. And there are, there's a lot of marketing possibilities out there, but it's up to you to pursue them. Yeah. That, that is definitely one thing I hear over and over, you know, that people think a publisher, if they, that if they can just get, and it's funny how there's almost these false finish lines, I'll finish the manuscript, you know, or I'll get the publishing contract or, you know, something like that. And, and then we realize you know, there's, there's really a lot of work that goes into not only creating a book that we can be proud of, but also making sure people know about it or care about it. And then the challenge becomes fitting the two together, being able to still show up for your creativity and your next book or your next project while on the same hand, you know, your marketing. But there's also something lovely about that because you're working two different sides of your brain. You know, the right side is the creative side and the left side is the more linear, logical side. So if you're doing marketing and creating simultaneously, you're really almost benefiting both sides. But you have to be disciplined and you have to have a strategy set up and you have to really find time to show up for your own projects. Well, Martha, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for many, many more hours. Many more miles. 
Yes, many more miles. That's right. <laughs> we really are on a, on a journey, on a voyage. I love that you used that word. Well, what final thoughts, what final encouragement or inspiration or advice would you leave people listening with? Well, my publisher is always saying, don't forget to mention the book. Yeah. <laughs> so I just happen to have one. But it is a workbook. And there's space for you to fill out. It's meant to be like a journal and a keepsake. So that if you fill out the questions, and the thing that's interesting is I heard from one person who's a photographer, and she bought the book, and she, you know, read, started reading it. And the first question on the first page is something like, are you willing to change in order to achieve your dreams or something like that? Yeah. Are you willing to risk changing in meaningful ways to live your best creative life? That's it. And she said she slammed the book shut and she didn't open it again for a month because that <laughs> terrified her. It was like, oh my God, change, you know, but whatever it takes to get through the workbook. I tried to present a lot of questions that would stimulate, you know, accessing parts of yourself that you might have forgotten or pushed aside or want to forget or whatever. And I hope that by the end of the workbook, because you could do it in a month, but a lot of people are taking a lot longer than that. I hope that you're transformed. You know, I hope that what you learn about yourself and who you are with your creativity and in life itself, that you are transformed by the project, by the process, and it opens you up for more creativity and more joy in your life. So there's my shameless promotion. No, I think, I think that's fantastic. And I love, by the way, I love that. That's your view. I mean, you're very, very clear about, you know, transformation happens in the process. In the doing. Yeah. In the doing of it. It's always, always both being and becoming, aren't we? Yes. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Well, if you're ever in Santa Cruz and want to go surfing, I hope you stop and contact me. And I will talk to you sometime down the road. Thank you so much. This was so enjoyable. I had a great time. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.